All right, welcome back. What I'd like to talk to you about is mindfulness training. And as we've reviewed so far, once we know how attention works, how powerful it actually is, and how it can actually become vulnerable and even compromised as a function of things like stress and mind wandering, we feel compelled to try to understand what we can do about it. And that's actually how mindfulness entered my laboratory's research. And it actually entered my research because it entered my life for the exact same reasons. Uh, back in 2004, after I had been a professor for a couple of years, studying attention, had never heard of the term mindfulness, really, and would say I was probably very skeptical to almost mm, more than a little bit skeptical regarding mindfulness. I found myself in, a, in my own high-stress circumstances, kind of landing there without even knowing about it. As a, a young mom whose husband was in grad school, running a lab, having a sort of a high-power career, what ended up happening to me is I ended up having uh, a high-stress response and lost feeling in my teeth from grinding. And when I had that experience, I was sort of flabbergasted because I realized I have no clue what's happening to my attention because I guess I've been very checked out of my life and perplexed that I actually study this stuff. So I remember thinking there's got to be a way I can kind of retrain my mind so that I can feel better. And that same sort of spring that I was having my own kind of journey with stress, um, a colleague of mine who happens to be a world-famous neuroscientist named Richie Davidson came to the University of Pennsylvania where I was a professor, and he actually gave a wonderful talk, not anything to do with mindfulness, but he showed two images on a screen as he was ending his talk. One was of a brain scan of somebody experiencing a very negative emotion. And we, unfortunately, the way we do these kinds of experiments lab is we bombard people with negative emotions, sort of the way I was describing to you of showing them scene after scene of bad events from the news. It can reliably show brain uh, profile of a negative mood. And then we do the same thing. And in fact, the other image he had on the screen was of a brain in a positive mood. And they had induced positive mood in a very similar way, good memories and good images. But even sitting in the back of the room, what I realized is that those brain images looked drastically different. And what I was experiencing was definitely more like the negative brain. So I boldly raised my hand and I just asked him point blank, how do I get that negative brain to get, look like that positive brain? And what he said shocked me because he said the word, one word answer, he said meditation. And I remember kind of, kind of doing a double take like, did he really say that? Does he know where he is? This is a scientific lecture. We don't use those words, right? So it was a little bit of a, uh, my own skepticism, my own bias against that term. And it was not in the field at all. Nobody was actually even studying this. Uh, or maybe back in the 70s, there were some studies done on it, but really nothing recent that had been done about it. But it kind of gnawed at me that he said this. And I, of course, respect him dearly. I had a chance to actually talk to him later that day, and he told me about some of the very exciting work they were doing in long-term mindfulness practitioners, long-term meditators regarding brain changes that happened. But none of that study, none of those studies was pub were published. So just out of my own curiosity as a respected scientist that uh, mentioned this word, I, I took myself to the library down the street and brought, browsed through some of the well-being and self-help sections and came upon this, what ended up being one of my favorite books to this day, a little book called 
Mindfulness for Beginners by Jack Cornfield. And I just thought I'd check it out and started following the practices in that book. And it was probably a couple months into committing to doing the practices that I had my own haha moment where I realized, oh my goodness, I can feel my teeth again. I've returned to being an engaged spouse and a more compassionate spouse, um, a more connected mother. And I actually, none of the external circumstances of my life, my stress level and demand hadn't really changed, but I was much more embodied and actually filled with much more joy than I recall experiencing over probably the six to nine months before that. So that was a really big, big moment for me. But the other aha part of it that actually changed uh, the course of my career was that I realized when I look back at Jack's words and Jack's guidance in that book is that he was talking about attention. He was talking about attention and training attention in a way that I had just never encountered in my professional life. But it got me very curious. So within a few months of that, I decided I was going to give it a shot and put mindfulness to the test in the lab. And what I'd like to share with you now is really the journey that that began, and that has now become probably the last 15 years of what my laboratory has done, and may explain to you my particular interest in working with people that have high stress, high demand lives, but still want to live it to the fullest, both in terms of their productivity, but also their sense of wellness and wholeness in their lives. And I want to support that in the research that we do. So so what we've been trying to understand is really from the brain science perspective, how is it that mindfulness training is training attention? So let's talk about that now. And it goes back to what we talked about regarding the different brain systems of attention, the orienting system, which is that flashlight, the alerting system, which is this noticing capacity, and then the sort of manager or juggler that keeps everything in line so that our goals and behavior align. When I started looking at Jack's practices and then, of course, studying many other mindfulness programs, such as mindfulness-based stress reduction, one foundational exercise that we saw over and over again that actually is part of every single mindfulness program that I've encountered, something called mindfulness of breathing, or you might call it sitting practice or breath awareness practice. It has many different kind of names, but it describes one of the more fundamental practices. And I'd like to just talk you through what the guidance is, and then we can connect it back to how it relates to brain training and attention training. So, and I'm hoping that you are practicing some of these types of practices with Jack's guidance and you'll get the kind of direct insight from practicing in the way that uh, probably if you read about it, you just wouldn't. So in the kind of mindfulness of breathing exercise that we offer in the programs that I study in my lab and that probably you have done, and we're certainly part of that initial journey I took into, into mindfulness, involves simple instructions, right? Something like sit in a comfortable, upright, alert posture. You want to present this mode of, of sort of dignified alertness, not too much rigidity. And once you kind of set that posture and that intention for selecting a, a short period of time, let's say 10 minutes, the instructions are, again, very straightforward. For this period of time, pay attention to the sensations of the breath. So we wanna get more granular than just the breath, right? Typically, it's something like pick sensations that are salient, prominent, and then pick one of those and keep your attention there. So select the sensation 
and then maintain your focus on it. The way we can think about it is we're, we're in essentially instructing people to shine that flashlight an, on an aspect of their experience of breathing. It could be the coolness of air moving in and out of your nostrils or your abdomen moving up and down, right? So you're going to hold the flashlight steady on those breath-related sensations for the entire period of the practice. That's sort of instruction one. The second part of the instruction is notice if the mind wanders. And I think that's a very powerful instruction because of the, even the way it's framed, it's not, if you happen to be that random strange person that has their mind wander, then you might need to do something about it. It's, a, it's in fact doing the exact opposite. It's saying, notice the mind wandering, which means you're gonna have this happen to you. The mind will wander. It's its natural tendency. When that happens, when you notice it, what you're gonna do, which is the third part of the instruction, is gently return your attention back to the breath-related sensations, right? So again, from the brain attention system point of view, we're shining the flashlight on a specific set of breath-related sensations. We're using our alerting system to monitor and notice where our mind is so that if we notice that it has wandered away from this target object, the breath-related sensations, we just take that flashlight and return it back to what the intended target is. That's the management system at work. It's ensuring that our actions and our goals are aligned. So even in this very simple mindfulness of breathing exercise, we can see that we're exercising all three of the attention systems over and over and over again. And this actually ties to a bigger reason that we think that attention is strengthened by mindfulness training. It is a form of brain training for attention. And I wanna just say one other aspect to this because often when people begin doing a mindfulness of, of breathing exercise or any mindfulness program and set of exercises, there might be a twinge of kind of resistance to them, meaning you've committed to doing it, you see that there's a value, you trust that the science is there that suggests it's worth your time, but it may not be obvious of how it relates to your life. And I hope that in all the topics that we've covered regarding the real science of attention and the very important role that it plays in virtually everything we do, now you can see that strengthening this system is going to directly impact your capacity to do all of those things. And when attention is compromised because of stress, we're going to be able to keep it strong even in the face of stress, keep it resilient and protected so that those capacities remain with us, even though the circumstances, if we did nothing at all, might degrade these capacities. So I wanted to actually uh, say a little bit about how we've seen mindfulness and mindfulness training show up in the lives of leaders and what they say back to us. And one group that I mentioned we worked with quite a bit is the military. Some of our very early studies offered mindfulness training, which had never been done before, to active duty military cohorts during their pre-deployment interval. Now, one thing about pre-deployment that is important to, to note is that its intention is to prepare you for deployment, right? You're getting all of your training, you're getting completely ready to go for whatever the mission ends up being. But that interval itself is very stressful, just as deployment is going to be. And we knew before we even started our work that, that people describe their well-being as degrading over this pre-deployment interval. 
But what we found out from our studies of attention is that attention also declines over the pre-deployment interval. And with now degraded attention, you get more concerned because now you're sending somebody off to a war zone and they don't have all their capacities there. So once we realized this, uh, you know, we ourselves as researchers, but also the Department of Defense became very interested in figuring out what we might offer military service members so that they could actually keep their attention protected even, even under these high stress circumstances. And I wanted to just describe to you what happened when we started doing this work, which I think is quite, quite telling. Not only did our, of course, results show beneficial effects that mindfulness training could indeed protect attention, and we'll talk more about that uh, in the next uh, series I, I have with you, the next hour session we have together. Not only was it finding that it was actually very protective, but what we were seeing was that it was causing these sort of ripples within this, this community of soldiers that we were working with. And some of the leadership started noticing that the, that the soldiers themselves were more alert, awake, engaged, and ready. They didn't have that sort of fatigued, foggy quality that oftentimes they have before they can go off into, into their mission. And one of the people that we ended up getting pretty close to was a, a colonel who gave us access to our first group of, of soldiers that we worked with. Well, that colonel ended up going on to becoming a one-star general and then a two-star general, and now he's a three-star general. So what has been really neat is to see somebody who is already a leader, but his leadership role has become more and more prominent. Now he actually is the director of the Army staff at the Pentagon. His name is General uh, Walter Pyatt. But General Pyatt committed to learning how to do these practices himself. And a couple of years back, he was actually deployed to Iraq. Now his role was to actually keep the peace, not only keep the peace, but build the peace. Because with ISIS removed from that region, all the factions that had been sort of banding together against a common enemy were now no longer together. They were kind of producing a lot of infighting. And his role was to help everybody get along so that Iraq could actually be a thriving, thriving sovereign nation. And what he said to me that was really striking was that it was his mindfulness practice that he thinks really helped him with that peacekeeping, peace building mission. Because what he said he had to do was actually be very steady in very high stress circumstances. He needed to really be able to listen. That flashlight needed to be sh shining not just on the environment around him, but the very conversation partners and the dynamics between them. And he needed to be able to quiet his own internal dialogue so that it didn't interfere with the job he had to do. And I'd like to just read to you what he said regarding uh, his kind of day-to-day -day experience with mindfulness to give you a real-life taste of a, of a military leader in this case and what he says mindfulness uh, did for his ability to lead. And it connects back to what I was saying about these kind of beneficial aspects regarding the brain's attention system and mindfulness training. So one of the things he said, and this is after now a period of, of mindfulness practice, as he said, now having practiced mindfulness, I can focus and stay focused on a situation or a person more easily without getting lost in thought or distracted by information being thrown at me. I can watch my mind and pull it back if it gets stuck in a memory or a worry. And I can drop the story 
of what I think should be happening so I don't become blind to what is happening. And I think that the, all three of these sort of features, focus and staying focused, watching the mind, dropping the story, are very much connected to these three components of the mindfulness of breathing exercise that we talked about, right? Selecting and noticing, sorry, selecting and maintaining, noticing what's happening, and then sort of re-engaging in an appropriate way. So I wanted to mention him and because he's, I think he did a very nice job describing in words what the brain system research is telling us regarding what might be strengthened. And I think what is compelling is that he wasn't just saying this with regard to, you know, being stateside and living his typical life, but really in the context of leading very stressful um, multiple uh, nations trying to get along uh, and help the country of, of Iraq, for example. Now, I don't want to leave you with this sense that, that mindfulness and mindfulness's benefits may be for these sort of unusual military or kind of high testosterone scenarios that are really probably not like most of our lives. But I do want to connect it back to all of us, right? Because most of us won't be in a war zone. Most of us won't have the kinds of sort of physical danger that warriors may encounter. But I know all of us have experienced that sense that the stress is so high and the consequences are so profound that it feels like life or death. It feels like we're in a battle. And we want to be able to harness our own capacity to pay attention so that we're battle ready, no matter what that battle is. And what we found is that the lessons we learned from the military, we've actually been able to apply to so many other cohorts. We've worked with medical and nursing professionals and medical trainees, because it ends up that it's not just soldiers over pre-deployment whose attention declines and degrades. Students also have their attention decline and degrade over the academic semester. What does that mean? that just the stress and strain of studying for the semester depletes your very capacity to do well when at the end of the semester it's final exam time, right? So there's a totally different type of population. First responders also, same idea. High stress fire season, for example, for firefighters or hurricane season here in Miami, or even accountants during tax season. Um, you know, I could go on and on about the kinds of organizations that we've worked with, kinds of individuals we've worked with in professional settings, workplace settings, for whom high stress is part and parcel of what they have to do, and degraded attention is what they experience if we do nothing at all. And in all of those circumstances, in the published work that we've been able to produce, we find that training in mindfulness, more so than other forms of training, can strengthen attention and protect attention so it stays steady and even improves, even over high-stress circumstances. So I hope that this resonates with you a little bit and kind of motivates you to saying that I am ready to continue not only applying my practice of mindfulness, but now my growing understanding of the science of attention to really harness its power and, and be able to experience firsthand my own growing attentional capacity so that I can have more moments of wellness, and really a sense of thriving and flourishing in my own life. As always, we love to hear from you. Please share your insights with us in the sandbox 
or write to us at innermba at soundstrue.com. And thanks for being part of the Inner MBA and for both the inner and outer work you do to benefit others.